Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 16. And um, I think the, the greatest topic for discussion right now in the 2016 election cycle is not whether Ted Cruz is going to win Indiana. It's not uh, who is going to be the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party. We knew that before the primary process even began. It was going to be Hillary Clinton. But the most important thing to talk about right now is Donald Trump's foreign policy speech, which he gave last week. And why is that? And I'm going to talk about his speech, uh, a couple of points in his speech that I think are, are essential for our understanding of the 2016 election. And moving forward, uh, if Trump is able to win the election, he's, he's going to get the nomination. Again, I think that all this talk about Cruz pulling out a miracle in Cleveland and winning the nomination, you know, sweeping it uh, or pulling it out from, from under uh, Donald Trump's feet, it, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, so I think that uh, people need to settle for the fact it's going to be Trump against Clinton. Now, if you want to vote third party, if neither one of those candidates is suitable for you, well, go for it. Uh, I think that um, you should be able to exercise your vote and vote for someone that best reflects your interests. So there are other candidates out there. There's going to be the Libertarian Party. Um, I'm actually hoping that uh, Bernie Sanders continues to run as an independent socialist. I think that's what he should have been doing the whole time anyways, and really come out and be who you are. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a socialist, so be a socialist. Um, and I mentioned months ago that the establishment, it's going to be interesting to see what they do, um, I thought for a time there was a possibility that an establishment candidate would run someone like John Anderson back in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was seen as too conservative, and so the establishment ran a guy and uh, John Anderson, and it was thought that John Anderson was going to pull enough votes away from Reagan that he wouldn't win. And, of course, Reagan ended up winning in a landslide in 1980 and 1984 because his message resonated. And I think that's where Trump has an advantage over just about anyone else right now. Clinton as well. I mean, Clinton has no energy. Nobody is really excited about a Hillary Clinton campaign. It's almost as if Hillary Clinton is is Henry Clay right now. I mean, Hillary Clinton's been waiting around, waiting around, waiting around, finally got her chance to be the candidate, and nobody cares. And nobody's really excited about her being the candidate. And it's if you think about Clinton... What is her qualification? She was first lady, then she was a carpetbag senator, then she was secretary of state, 
And, of course, all these terrible things happened when she was Secretary of State. The Obama administration foreign policy while Clinton was Secretary of State was a mess. And actually, that's what I want to talk about is foreign policy. Because foreign policy does dictate domestic policy. And if you want a good example of that, all you have to do is go look at the Cold War. All of the presidents during the Cold War, from the time of Truman forward, but really it's, it's, it's quite evident during, during Truman's administration, all of the presidents during that time let their foreign policy dictate their domestic policy. So at the end of World War II, we had a very interesting situation. The United States government had proposed several new bureaucratic agencies during the war, just like during World War I, to control labor, prices, consumption, production, all of the things that they thought were essential for leading the American economy through the war. And so when the war is over, Truman was charged with the task of essentially undoing all of this bureaucracy. But he didn't do it. Now, he promised he would do it, but we also have to remember the United States ended World War II basically because Truman said it's over. And he made a statement that only he gets to decide when the war is over. And then what he does is he goes out and he says, okay, we're going to, through executive order, we're going to strip down all of these executive programs. We're going we're to phase them out. We're going to scale them back. But he really didn't do that. In fact, all that he did was essentially take the program, the, the bureaucracy, the, the, whether it was, you know, again, something for controlling labor or consumption, and he just changed the name and kept it around. And why would he do that? Because Truman understood that going back to a pre-World War II economic situation or military situation would undermine the entire basis of the New Deal. Every president since Franklin Roosevelt has carried forward the New Deal in one way or another. We're still living in the New Deal. In fact, you can look at the Great Society during the Johnson administration or uh, even compassionate conservatism. I mean, take your pick during the George W. Bush administration. I mean, you, you, cannot, you can say it's a Republican or a Democrat. It really doesn't matter. What they did is take the New Deal and alter it slightly or change some of the language or as the uh, left likes to talk about with current historical monuments, recontextualize them. <laughs> uh, same thing, uh, and uh, we're, we're, going to, we're going to change the meaning of it in some way. Now, recontextualizing to the left means that we're going to distort what it's there for. Uh, for, for everyone else in politics, recontextualizing simply means that we're going to use some spin doctoring and make this sound different than what it is. It's Orwellian, really, is what, what, what we're doing with these government programs. And so I say that everything is built off of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, and it is. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, in 1944, made his speech where he talked about a second Bill of Rights. And he said every American deserves a, you know, a job and a house, and uh, they deserve uh, clothing or whatever it is. I mean, they deserve essential things of life. Every American deserves these things. And, of course, that becomes, healthcare. that becomes the talking points then for everyone moving forward. Truman was no different. The, the fair deal, which was based on the New Deal, was just the New Deal recontextualized. 
And all of these government programs stuck around in one way or another. Uh, and I'm talking about the illegal things that were happening during World War II. And I say they're illegal because the federal government had no constitutional authority to reorganize the economy the way they did during World War II. And I know people will say, well, and, I, and I've actually had conservatives say this to me. Well, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was facing a crisis, and uh, he had to do these things to, to make sure that the United States survived and the economy thrived, and so we, we, he had to do the New Deal. And then, and then, of course, during World War II, he had to do these things. He had to make sure that nobody could buy sugar, because we needed sugar. And so, uh, you know, we have to give him a pass. No, we don't. No, we don't. We don't have to give anyone a pass for violating their oath of office. The founding generation considered that an impeachable offense. But yet we're willing to do it, in a quote-unquote crisis situation. Well, when do we not have a crisis situation now? And essentially, that's where foreign policy comes into this. You see, because Truman is, is rebranding these things, these domestic policies, these, these domestic programs, again, whether it's uh, to control labor or um, to control uh, production, and when we get to the Cold War, he can use the emergency of the Cold War to ramp up these programs again. And there's one very famous example when Harry Truman tried to nationalize a steel mill. Now, he had tried to do this during World War II. At the end of the war, in fact, the government had taken over things like the Chicago cab industry. Now, that was a hard one to explain. How was taking over the Chicago cab industry essential for the war effort? But this is essentially what was happening. So as we move forward, we see that domestic policy and foreign policy go hand in hand. Uh, Truman justified a lot of this government action during the Korean War because, of course, we had these uh, powerful North Korean bombers flying over the United States. This was an emergency. This was good for us, as Truman said. We, you know, we need to do these things. We need to pay higher taxes and, and, and enjoy these uh, larger bureaucratic programs, these nightmare bureaucratic programs, because uh, this is going to be good for us and good for the economy and good for the world as we go fight the communist North Koreans. So again, foreign policy and domestic policy are tied together. The Cold War allowed for tremendous growth in the federal government on the domestic side, not just the, not just the military side. We all know about that. Of course, during the Cold War, we stayed on a wartime footing with the military. You know, before World War II, this is what Charles Lindbergh was saying, essentially at the time, hey, um, we, we can't fight the Germans because our military stinks. And so in the 1930s uh, and 1920s, after World War I, we went to a period where we reduced the size of the military. The war's over, so we reduced the size of the military, but... We haven't done that since the end of World War II. I mean, in essence, we're still on a wartime footing, both in terms of domestic production and uh, our military production. We haven't left. And so if we don't have the Cold War to fight, then perhaps the military's ramped down, and then at the same time, we don't need all these bureaucratic programs to control every element of the economy and they don't need to be out there ensuring that the government can overregulate the economy to do X, Y, and Z. 
We don't need guns and butter. Again, you move forward. Uh, you move forward into the Vietnam era with Lyndon Johnson. We're fighting communism in Southeast Asia. At the same time, we're providing Medicare and Medicaid and welfare and everything else. So this is the butter part of it. And Johnson was an ardent New Dealer. He cut his teeth with Franklin Roosevelt. So I think that uh, you can't get around the fact that foreign policy and domestic policy are entwined. And so this is why I want to talk about Donald Trump's speech. Because it was one of the most important speeches, I think, in the modern era when it came to a major candidate. Now, Trump's not saying anything that other people haven't said. And what I mean by that is Trump's not saying anything here that people like Robert Taft didn't say during the Cold War, or people like Pat Buchanan didn't say when he was running for president, or Ron Paul didn't say when he was running for president. The difference is that all of those people were not the presumptive nominee for a major political party. Ron Paul was was saying the right things, but he wasn't going to get nominated. Pat Buchanan in 1988, 1992, 1996 was saying the right things, but of course he wasn't going to get nominated. By 96, he's running on the Reform Party. Uh, 92 and 88, he's making uh, some serious waves, and perhaps people are thinking about Pat Buchanan rather than George H.W. Bush both times. But uh, you had Ross Perot out there, and of course Ross Perot was saying a lot of these things as well. So maybe you could say Ross Perot was was making waves there. But Trump is now going to be is is going to be the Republican nominee for president. If that doesn't happen, I. I I would be shocked. So he makes this speech last week, and everyone hated it in the mainstream. The National Review hated it, Slate hated it, New York Times hated it, MSNBC hated it, CNN hated it, The New Yorker hated it, The Daily Beast hated it. Uh, You had Lindsey Graham hate it, Charles Krauthammer hated it, Uh, Bill Kristol will probably hate it, Wall Street Journal hated it, The Economist hated it, everyone in the establishment hated it, which is why, if you're a real conservative, you should love it. Now, I've talked about Trump's foreign policy before in an article, and I talk about um, the fact that this was, his foreign policy really is a conservative foreign policy. The Bush foreign policy is not a conservative foreign policy. It's a Wilsonian foreign policy, and we have to understand that. What happened during the Cold War is that the right decided that winning the war against communism was more important than holding the line on domestic spending and uh, on, on government spending. So we had to go out and beat the communists. And so people like the National Review took a very internationalist and interventionist foreign policy position, whereas people like Robert Taft and then other in the quote-unquote paleoconservative movement stayed true to their roots of non-intervention. So what, we, what we're seeing now, what we're witnessing in 2016, is the resurgence of that non-interventionist strain of American conservatism. That's all it is. It's always been there, but no one's been able to get the nomination in the last half century who espoused this type of position. So this is why Trump is truly groundbreaking. I mean, this is earth-shattering to the establishment. They are being destroyed right now, and they don't like it. And non-intervention really is the American 
the traditional American position. And you can go all the way back to, of course, George Washington, who uh, talked about this in his farewell address, which, of course, was written by Alexander Hamilton. But the nicest example is Thomas Jefferson, who in his first inaugural address said that American foreign policy should be, quote, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations and tangling alliances with none. Now, of course, this did not make Jefferson a wimp. He was willing to go out and attack uh, Muslim sultans in North Africa who were enslaving American sailors, and he won. So Jefferson was willing to, to do what he had to do at times that when the times dictated a, a response, and, and that's what happened there. I mean, you can look at this with, say, uh, the terrorism of ISIS, uh, it, it it demands that particular situation because the United States is a potential target. It demands a type of response. But the way Trump is doing it is not this crazy uh, schizophrenic foreign policy that we have today. Trump is willing to make allies with European powers to go out and take out ISIS. And one of those, of course, is Russia. And people have said, and there's actually, I wrote an article about this again, at Breitbart a couple of times, and I found that there was some website out there, some guy was going berserk over the fact that I said in this last article that, you know, maybe we should talk to Russia about a common enemy, which is terrorism. They don't like terrorism either. And uh, this guy is saying that, you know, Trump is going to be Putin's patsy and all kinds of things, that the Russians are still the greatest threat to the world today. Uh I just don't see it. And I think a lot of people looking at Russia and looking at what they're doing don't see it either. Um, Perhaps there is some intimidation going on right now because the United States and Russia are on opposite sides. We're funding ISIS in Syria. So, of course, they're going to believe that our foreign policy is dangerous to them. This is exactly what was happening during the Cold War. And people have said, we need to show Putin we're tough. We're going to go out there and, you know, be a bully, and we'll go to war with Russia. War with Russia. And Pappy Kennedy has pointed out, and this is the Reagan thing, and Pappy Kennedy has pointed out that's not the Reagan way. Reagan was willing to talk to Russia at any time, the Soviet Union at any time, because he wanted a peaceful resolution to the Cold War. He was willing to build up the military, which is exactly what Trump is saying he's going to do. He's willing to build up the military to try to win through strength, but he was willing to negotiate at all times. Everything was on the table because nuclear war was such a great threat, and he didn't want that for the United States. Or for Russia, for that matter. And so Trump says things like, look, here's how we have to handle this problem. We have to have a strong economy at home. Well, absolutely. We have to be able to take care of ourselves. We have to have a strong economy. We can't have an economy that barely grew, which is what it's done in the last eight years. The Obama economy is a mess. That creates a volatile situation. People start saying, wait a second here, and maybe there's something better. Maybe we need to become a socialist, which is absolutely idiotic, but maybe we need to do that. No. But see, these type of economic problems create a climate where that type of ideology can take hold. And that's exactly what Obama is. I mean, he's a Marxist. Uh, he just doesn't come out and say it anymore, but he's a Marxist. So domestic policy is very important. If we have a strong economy at home, something like socialism can't take root here, even though 
I think you could say that Americans are willing to take socialism in different forms on, uh, you know, if they're fed it in a way that it's not socialism. Well, we've got it already. We've got socialized medicine. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, socialized domestic programs. We've got the progressive income tax. We've got all the things. We've got the, the fully funded state-centered education system. We've got all the things that the socialists wanted in the Communist Manifesto. We just don't realize that. But perhaps a stronger economy at home would help our foreign policy as well. And one of the other things, of course, is immigration. And we're seeing now. I mean, this is the amazing thing to me, how anyone can look at what's, what just happened in California with the riots there around Donald Trump. Anyone can look at that and say, you know what? What we need is more of that. We need those people in charge. This is absolutely crazy. I'm not, I, I didn't see when Obama won the election and the right lost. I didn't see anybody going out and tipping over police cars and throwing stuff at police and acting like a bunch of idiots riding everywhere. I didn't see any of that. But yet, when the other side wins, it's exactly what the left does. You want those people in power? I mean, Americans should stand up to that and just say, you know what? I'm not going to support any candidate that supports that. And essentially, uh, the Clintons and the Sanders of the world that's what they support. Those are their supporters. I'm not going to support anyone that supports that. I won't do it. So that alone should get Trump some support. But if you look at Trump's policy statements, and this is he's been calling this America first, it sounds a lot like virtually every president of the early to mid-19th century. So this is what Trump said in his foreign policy speech. Quote, My foreign policy will always put the interests of the American people and American security above all else. That will be the foundation of every decision that I will make. That's what he said in his foreign policy speech. This is what Martin Van Buren said in his first inaugural address. Quote, We want to cultivate the friendship of all nations as the conditions most compatible with our welfare and the principles of our government. We decline alliances as averse to our peace. We desire commercial relations on equal terms, being ever willing to give a fair equivalent for advantages received, end quote. So this is what uh, Trump also said. Look, we want to have peaceful trade, but if the deal isn't in our favor or at least beneficial to the United States, we're walking away from the table. We, we want to trade with people. We want to be on peaceful terms with people. We'll, we'll, now, Van Buren's saying we're not going to get, we're not going to go out and uh, uh, cultivate alliances. And so you could say, well, I mean, Trump is saying he wants alliances. But Trump has also said he only wants alliances that work for the United States. And he's questioning the value of NATO. NATO is a Cold War dinosaur. And it, it can get the United States in a lot of trouble. So is it for our interest that we do these things now, or is it for someone else's interest? And all Trump is saying, look, if you want to be in an alliance with us, you better come to the table ready to be an equal partner in that alliance. We're not going to, we're not going to carry your water anymore. So we have this alliance system. It's very hard to untangle yourself from that. This is what Jefferson is saying, no entangling alliances. Very hard to untangle yourself from that. But Trump is willing to start this, the discussion now. Zachary Taylor said this in his first inaugural address, quote, As American freemen, we cannot but sympathize in all efforts to extend the blessings of, our, of civil and political liberty. 
But at the same time, we are warned by the admonitions of history and the voice of our own beloved Washington to abstain from entangling alliances with foreign nations. In all disputes between conflicting governments, it is our interest, not less than our duty, to remain strictly neutral. While our geographical position, the genius of our institutions and our people, the advancing spirit of civilization, and above all, the dictates of religion direct us to the cultivation of peaceful and friendly relations with all other powers. Again, no alliances that aren't in our best interest. So I think what you're looking at with Donald Trump, and when you're talking about foreign policy, and what Trump is going to do if he's president. Now, he can't do everything unilaterally. And of course, as I've written in, in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, uh, the Congress should have a role in foreign policy. But uh, I think Trump's position, which he is the chief diplomat if he is elected president, he's the head of state, essentially. I think Trump's position is going to be one that's different. He actually has to negotiate treaties. And so maybe these treaties will actually be beneficial for the United States and not harm the United States, like we've seen with this non-treaty climate change agreement, which really is a treaty. But they're just going to, the Obama administration is going to illegally implement this thing, how they're going to do that. And I mean, Congress has the power to stop all of this. But this is essentially what the Obama administration is going to do. They're just going to do an end around Congress. So again, foreign policy determines domestic policy. So perhaps Trump's position of non-intervention, of America first, of peace above all else, of reconsidering our alliance system, it's the real conservative American foreign policy. It always has been. And if we take that position, if we say we're going to focus on our own backyard and straighten out our economy, handle this massive immigration problem, which really is a problem, if we're going to go out and take care of those things, perhaps the United States can be great again. I mean, this is what Trump is saying. Now, Trump cannot do all these things himself, and he shouldn't do all these things himself. There's no way he should consider doing, American people should want him to do all these things himself. But the one thing the president does constitutionally have the ability to do is direct foreign policy. I do think Trump needs to go back to making treaties with people and actually have those things ratified by the Senate. But Trump does set the agenda in foreign policy, and then everything builds off of that. And if the Congress actually does what they're supposed to do, perhaps they're going to do some things right in the domestic policy realm, and if the states would actually do what they're supposed to do and tell the federal government big a big N-O to all the unconstitutional things they do, well, then maybe we can get back to real federalism again, which is what all Americans should be wanting, on the left and the right. The socialists in Massachusetts and the socialists in California could have their little socialist utopias. The socialists in Vermont, Bernie Sanders could be, you know, governor of Vermont or something, have his little socialist empire up there and bring the Cubans in to go talk and whatever else he wants to do. Uh, he could do that. There's own little socialist utopia. And uh, the rest of us in, in real America could go about our lives and uh, in a way that would best suit us. And I think that's, that's uh, the important thing to get out of this. If we had real constitutional government, you would have more liberty. 
but I'm not always certain that's what the American people want. In fact, depressingly enough, I think it's the opposite of what most people in America want. Liberty is hard. Being dependent is easy. It's a very seductive thing to have somebody take care of you all the time. We'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. (laughs) 